Currency Cloud, like 11FS, share an obsession with building the future of financial services through our products and services, with a vision to provide our customers with solutions that challenge the status quo and deliver something extraordinary to their end users. Currency Cloud is a cross-border payments platform that enables banks, fintechs and FX brokers to seamlessly collect, convert, hold and pay out in 35 currencies in over 180 countries around the world. We are the invisible pipes that power the payments of over 500 customers. These include some of the world-leading fintech unicorns such as Revolut, Starling, Standard Bank and Free Trade, processing over £7 billion worth of flow every month. Our integrated APIs make it easy for businesses to access local and international payment rails and to embed payments into the core of their business. Currency Cloud is a Visa solution and has offices in London, Cardiff, New York, Amsterdam and Singapore. But if you'd like to discover more about us, you can do that online at currencycloud.com. From 11FS, this is Fintech Insider After Dark. In today's new show, we bring you Least You Own Fintech Caffeine, definitely saying that wrong, raises Series B, a new credit card code to prevent gun violence in the US, and the big red button of news, whatever that is, we're going to find out very shortly. We get into all of this and much, much more on today's Fintech Insider After Dark, live at the Village Underground here in London. <laughs> That was good. Well done. All right. Welcome to episode 66666 of Fintech Insider. Hopefully a rather good omen rather than a bad one for a live show, but we'll see how that pans out, I guess, over this course of it. Based on the audience so far and based on the reaction, like these people in the front really hyped for this. It's going to be amazing. Uh, so 666 episodes. So uh, hopefully you know me by now, but my name is David Breer and I'm joined this week on a very special Fintech Insider After Dark by a panel of Fintech Insider All-Stars. Uh, on my count, this is the 19th special After Dark event that we've done. And we've done it from London, Amsterdam, New York, San Fran, Dublin, Helsinki, and a bunch of other places that probably the free bar makes me forget. Uh, as always, I am not alone, but we have an amazing lineup tonight. Uh, please go wild and welcome them all to the stage. Come join his guest. All right, all right. So, <laughs> firstly, it is my 11FS colleague, Mr. Jason Bates, co-founder of 11FS, deputy CEO, and a bunch of other cool shit that he's done over his career. How's it going, Jason? Wow, you're talking super fast tonight. I've had a lot of, I'll be honest with the green room in the back there, I had a lot of alcohol before I got going on this one. <laughs> I'm just excited that there's people. It's weird. But... This is going to be like a 15-minute podcast that you're going to yeah. have to turn down to like three-quarters exactly. speed. Exactly. This, this is one for everybody who listens on two times speed. <laughs> I just want to mess with you for a little bit. But, uh, how's your week been, anyway? Good? Good, really good. Yeah, it's weird. We're in a place, me and Jason were talking about this earlier on. We usually stay in the Citizen M, which we don't anymore in case you were going to get weird about it. Um, <laughs> but um, we've often stood outside this place and been like, really cool people coming here. We're not, we're not allowed to be in here. It's not, we're not cool enough. Look at us now. We're at this place. So uh, we're all very excited. Uh, okay, welcome back to the show anyway. It's been a little while that you've been on, yeah. isn't it? So it's, uh, but it's nice to have you I've been back. Been traveling around like doing work and shit. All right. All right. 
Aspersions <laughs> cast like just swan about on a podcast, like who'd have thought? But uh, anyway, making a welcome return to FinTech Insider, we have Sarah Kachansky, independent FinTech strategy consultant. Welcome back to the show, Sarah. How you been? I'm good, thank you. I am working on that title. Um, last time I did this show, I did ask for suggestions and nobody gave me any. So if anybody wants to tweet me afterwards. <laughs> IFSC, yeah, it's a bit of a weird one, isn't it, in that sense? But. There's too many acronyms in finance already. I need to think creatively, but I'll get there. How are you doing anyway? What is, what is the life of an independent fintech <laughs> strategy consultant? I mean, I, I heard backstage you're basically flying everywhere around the world talking to people about what they need to do. Pretty much, yeah. It's, um, it's, it's amazing. It's, I'm, I'm doing every, all the things I've always done and loved to do, except now I'm my own boss, which is fantastic. I get to do things like say, I'm taking Fridays off and just mm. do that. So it's brilliant. It's a crazy idea, it really is. It won't catch up. <laughs> uh, right. Uh, we're also joined by Anna Herrera, Senior Editor, Crypto Bloomberg News. Welcome back, Anna. I mean, you were literally on the first episode of Fintech Insider back I was. in 2016. I'm very proud. Yeah. Yes. Uh, is, that, is that on your LinkedIn profile? Because if it isn't, you really... I do a on. post daily about it. I tell everyone every day. <laughs> Whenever they, do you know me? I was on the first. No, but seriously, I, I do brag about it sometimes. You do? Yeah. It's good. It's good to know. I mean, it, it's weird. Last time we caught up, you had one less baby. Now you're like... I had just... one baby in my belly and then one that hadn't been conceived yet. And so we haven't seen each other since, since then. So I, I wasn't... I think when we recorded the last... <laughs> that, that sounds very weird. Yes. Jake. Jason was not part of that earlier conversation. <laughs> let's, 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 let's go back to, so we were, I was working in New York, I came back uh, to London, and now there was a pandemic and so forth, and so now I am a new job. <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad you caught that, though, because like, I was like, and now, then, yeah, no, yeah, there's going to be an edit here at some point, right? So, all right, well, lovely to see you. Yes. We'll get into more trouble, I'm sure, in that sense. But, um, all right, uh, and uh, closing out the All-Star panel, we have Richard Davies. Like, Richard, you're going to be the center one. You're the CEO of a bank now. Like, this is amazing. So, uh, but so amazing to have you on the show. It's, uh, I mean, you've been, I think this is your third After Dark you've been on. It this is. is. pretty cool. So, how you, how you been? I've been good, thank you. I've been loving the new job running Alica. Um, sort of, sort of that, being your own boss is a great thing. Um, no other sort of crazy people to deal with. Uh, just, just crack on. Um, so yeah, well, loving, loving life. Yourself. You're the only crazy person you have to I deal with. I don't think I'm crazy. You know? <laughs> and some of my team here, they don't think that, I am either. That, sure. That's what crazy people say. Like, uh, and there's a reason we put you together at the end of the panel, because uh, you can be crazy together. It's nice. But uh, All right. Uh, well, uh, for everybody who is in the room, you've got to be part of this too, not just with the Dublon Tondras and the sort of generic whooping, which is awesome too. Like, feel free to get involved. Uh, there we go. Um, but um, get, get tweeting your thoughts. So today's stories are going to be um, interesting. They're going to be different things that have been happening. If you want to use the hashtag AfterDarkHomecoming, uh, we'll read out some of the favorite tweets that we've got during the show. The, the uh, editors will be popping them up in front of me, and um, you could be embarrassed in front of hundreds of thousands of people. So that would be great fun. Uh, but um, with all that said and done, maybe let's get on with the news. Uh, so, the first story that we found was one that was covered over in TechCrunch. This is lease to own startup Caffeine? What are we going with on the pronunciation? Sarah, I always come to you for these. What do you reckon? I think caffeine. Caffeine? Um, it may be that somebody knows differently. But... All right. So, lease to own fintech startup Caffeine raises $18 million to battle with buy now, pay later. Uh, caffeine, a lease to own startup aimed at underbanked consumers who don't have access to traditional credit, has raised 
uh, $80 million in a Series B funding round. While there are similarities to the buy now pay later approach for making purchases, the company's model is different in a few ways. Caffeine actually buys the product from the merchant on the consumer's behalf and then rents it back to them over the course of the next 12-month period. So if they make all of the payments, well, they're in luck and they own the thing. Uh, but if they make those payments earlier, well, then they get a significant, in air quotes, which is all terrible on a podcast, uh, discount. Uh, if they can't, well, then caffeine reclaims the item. Uh, caffeine is out to boost financial inclusion by helping consumers who may not qualify for credit cards in that traditional sense. So, I mean, this is interesting, is it? We've had um, buy now, pay later, we're going to like someone else but you pay and own later, maybe? Like, what, what do you think on this one, Sarah? I mean, this is another very old way of buying something made digital. It's higher purchase. Um, and the problem I have with models like this, and this is nothing against caffeine specifically, is that if you don't have much money, if you cannot afford a credit card and you use a model like this, you will end up paying two, three, four times the value of that product by the time you actually own it. And by that point, it's worth less than it was at the beginning. It, it's, it's like... It's a very traditional model for buying a car and always one that if you can avoid, you always should. First of all, never buy a new car because it will just lose value. But on the, totally aside from that, I, this is not my favourite model. My preferred model when you're looking at kind of the new ways to help the underserved, particularly at the moment, afford things that they need. And it may well be that you do need a refrigerator. That is something that you probably you know, do need in your home. Is, is these kind of save-to-buy apps. So Accrue is the big one in the US. You basically you have to have a certain amount to make a deposit, and then each, you get given a plan. Each month, you put a certain amount in. If you meet it, the merchant will then top that up. So basically, instead of paying buy now, pay later to bring you in using instalment payments, the merchant is adding to your ability to make the payment on that product. But at the end of it, you don't actually get the product until you have the money that you can hand over, and the product is fully yours. And I know that's not what we're talking about here, but it's just what came to mind. And, and the caffeine model to me just feels like another way of getting people who are struggling into more debt without them realising what they're doing. Yeah, I guess, as you say, there's, there's instances where getting the thing instantaneously is sensible, isn't it, in that, in that sense? But, I mean, is this, um, is this essentially not unsecured lending, but securitised lending in that sense? I mean... I don't want to come to you as the, the bank guy. The bank like, guy. Like, <laughs> so bank guy. We talked about this. <laughs> but what, what, uh, is, it, is, is it a sensible step from their perspective? Because essentially there's, a, there's an asset, there's a securitised thing against this, isn't there? That probably makes it less risky. I'm not sure, to be honest, because, I mean, let's be honest, you get a sofa or a fridge and nine months later, how much is it really worth after you've kind of... Exactly. You dropped a kebab down it or, or whatever's happened to it. So, um, is, that, is that an accurate... I feel like you were looking at me at that point. <laughs> <laughs> I'm very respectable. You know. <laughs> no accusations. Um, but, I mean, listen, we actually do this product for business customers, but it is where the asset is, like, a security end. I mean, we might charge 1.3 times the asset value over five years. Um, so, clearly a lot more affordable. I think if you are talking a year and it's two, three times the original value, it, it's, uh, it's not great. And, and I don't think the security is, is worth anything. So I, I'm, I'm pretty much a Sarah here. I, I, I don't really like it. It's, it's a pretty old-fashioned industry. It's been around for a while. It's, it's fairly exploitative of consumers. Yeah, don't like it. What do you think, Anna? 
I've been sitting here trying to not. So I. Well, that's I always three wonder, minutes. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I always wonder when financial inclusion gets brought up in fintech. How often is it actually financial inclusion, or is it just someone something? that has been done in finance for a long time and was maybe called exploitative, but you put a little bit of tech. And so we can say it's financial inclusion. I'm not saying that it's the case for this company, which I, I don't know well, but you know, it does seem like throwing everything under the financial inclusion labels, label sort of might obfuscate what is really going on. Yeah. Um, so that's sort of my warning. Of it, it, well, it's an interesting with the comparison to buy now, pay later in that sense. Like actually, you know, options and having options to be able to kind of do it in any way which you want to but is it a to your point around the APRs is it a trap in that sense in terms of where so I mean how would you how would you rate it against buy now pay later well I was going to say you know we're talking from almost a theoretical basis of it's great not to use credit to just buy it outright and that is the you know the best way of doing it the most cost effective way but if you do need a fridge or your boiler blows up and you, you, your credit score is in the gutter, then what do you do? Because like, I'm not going to be able to save for it for six months. The kids are cold. They want their, you know, their milk in the uh, fridge. So there has to be something there. So along one side of the, um, the argument, you've got to say, well, actually having a facility which does provide some security, which, which tries to deal with the credit risk a little bit in order to make those use cases work, then you've got to have something there. And it is going to be more expensive because more people are going to default on it. If you're predatory and start to really go for um, profits, then that's a problem. But the problem is all of these buy now, pay later or higher purchase or whatever, they use that argument, that one use case to say, this is why it's good. And then in the end, people aren't buying a fridge or a, a new um, uh, boiler. They're you know, getting a 16-inch plasma TV and, and things that they're just um, purchases that, that actually they don't you know, need. That, that's my question. Like, I think now they say that they only, um, they're only available for bigger sort of items. Like, what if they start restrict going down and like, you can buy shoes? I mean, I'm not, and there's always the sort of paternalistic argument of who am I to say whether someone needs shoes uh, or not. Like, that, that's part of the argument. But then, you know, do you get people into a cycle of debt that might have been avoided? And, mm. and I guess now, obviously, with the cost of living crisis, it's, it's worrying, right? If, if, but again, on the other side, if like someone can't pay for their bills, but they do need to not have their kids freeze, then there has to be an option. But again, is it, is it that innovative? And also with you know, talking about the macro environment, you have investors who do tell us, you know, they, they are more concerned about investing in companies that focus on being profitable. And how profitable is it to service these customers if you're not charging them very high rates, right? Yeah. So, like, what is the balance there? I mean, in my, in my head, I have, on these things, I mean, we had a conversation on, on Fintech Insider not long ago about buy now, pay later. And in my head, I have Ron Shevlin going, <laughs> don't tell me how to use credit. <laughs> like... This is America. Like I can just credit. Like, and that's pretty much how Ron talks. If you're listening, Ron, I love you. But actually, being in a situation where you can, do we have to tell people? Do we have to stop them doing that? Is that something we have to control? Or I think, yeah. I, say, I think there is an interesting evolution in this model because I, I know about higher purchase agreements oh, broadly, but I went away and looked into this morning, kind of what those look like for furnitures, fridges, TV, uh, you know, sofas, fridges, TVs. This morning, I love Sarah. She's always so prepared for this. It's brilliant. <laughs> if there's one person we can guarantee has read all the show notes and is like 
done research and stuff. Sarah Kachansky. Anyway. It's a, it's a, well, it's a, it's a, you know, firstly, I'm a researcher. So that's goodness true, that's for true. that. Um, second of all, it's amazing what you can do on Chilton trains when the Wi-Fi is actually working. Um, so the, the, the point was that the services that exist right now are really interesting. They're first of all simply very localised. So you have one for Yorkshire, one for Cheshire, which... And they all have different kind of products available. And I imagine if this is a national service, then that opens up to more people. The second thing that's interesting is with caffeine, if you get to the point where you can no longer, as far as I understand it from reading the article, if you, you no longer want the product or can no longer afford the payments, you just hand it back. That is not something you can do under a traditional hire purchase agreement. Under that, you're tied into 12 months, 18 months, two years. And if you cannot make the payments, then you are drawn into a very traditional cycle of debt and debt collection. So if caffeine can make it work where you do get to the point where you think, I no longer want this sofa, I no longer need this whatever, I'm just going to hand it back and avoid getting yourself further into debt, then that is an improvement and that is an evolution. Um, there's also an interesting thing that they talk about with upgrading. And I was like, upgrading one sofa? How does one upgrade one sofa? Um, but I think that may be where they're making the money. So if you get to the point where you've got the thing you need, you come into better or you know, less straightened financial circumstances, you can either pay off. And again, this is going back to cars. This is how it works at cars. You pay off the one you've got and just own the value of it then, or you just upgrade to the next one, the newer one. Mm. I guess what also matters is, maybe they're not not buying the thing, they're buying it using a credit card and then the rate's higher or they're going to like a loan shark somewhere across the road, right? So like it depends if the alternative is worse in terms of finance and I guess you could call it financial inclusion or like not as bad, right? But, you know, with buy now, pay later, we're now seeing studies showing people are using it for groceries and essentials, which is, you know, but then again, the question is, is the buy now, pay later the problem or this is a problem that people need to go borrow to buy food like should you address the buy now pay later or the bigger macro problem yeah there's a there's a sort of a theme in some of the stories today that we'll sort of come to a little bit later on which is like are we solving the the symptoms or the disease in that sense but uh, uh, a few interesting uh, uh, tweets Ali Patterson from Fendertech Finance just says whoop so like I just guess Ali <laughs> Patterson's just happy to be out as well which is nice uh, Leonard Berger wondering whether true financial inclusion products can continue to thrive under current economic conditions uh what do you think? Is it, uh, is it a, an untreatable niche in the changes that we're sort of seeing from an economical perspective? Or, I mean, that's, I'm, I'm not, don't quote me on that, anybody. Um, but what do you think? Is um, pure financial inclusion plays going to stand up in such a significant downturn we're seeing? I think it comes back to what you call financial inclusion. I mean, we would say that the segment we focus on doesn't have enough attention from the, the major banks. And it's a third of the economy, and that needs to be a problem that's solved to help UK grow and thrive. Um, clearly, I know you look at uh, things like people moving cross-border and being able to open an account and without an address. Uh, there's problems out there that I don't think are at all affected by the current economic conditions. I think if you're at the margins of consumer lending, then... I mean, there is clearly something about not going to the loan shark on the local estate that's going to kneecap you if you don't pay back. That's better to have some digital lender that's, that's not going to do that, right? I, but it's, it's quite a tough debate because so much of this does involve, sadly, and this, we've seen this time and again with lenders that have this business model, you may get into it with the right intentions and then 
you end up finding the, the profitable customers, the one that's go down a debt spiral, right? They're constantly reborrowing from you yeah. and getting more and more into debt. And it's, it's, it's just a sad fact that often that's the way it leads. Yeah, definitely. It's an interesting one, isn't it? That responsibility. And, and again, I've got Ron Shevlin sitting at the back of my head in this one. But what do you think? Do, do you think, Sarah, people have a, do organizations have a responsibility in that sense? Or is it a, that these are tools and tools can be used responsibly or you, tools can be used irresponsibly? Oh, I mean, it's, I actually sat on a panel um, at a conference. The whole conference was about, like, resp responsible lending. And we just, we, you know, the, everybody's always going to disagree on this to a certain extent. The question is, you know, there need to be guidelines. Who writes the guidelines? I, I, I don't know the answer. And I think we, it's, in the current economic climate, it becomes even more tricky to pick apart um, how... Whether you should be telling people what to do when there are so many other things affecting their financial circumstances over which they have zero control, yeah. and in fact, which are making their financial circumstances worse. Buy now, pay later is probably not what's making most people's current, you know, not making most people struggle the most right now. Um, I think organisations have a responsibility to try and work out where people are in trouble, and I think that does mean investing and and kind of infrastructure in some cases. You know, where can you use open banking? Where can you find out what these are? The, where else these people are spending money? But and we're going to come onto this in the next story. Um, at what point does the use of that data become you know an encroachment upon their own independence and their privacy? So it's such a difficult thing. But but I think that's really interesting. I was talking to the uh, the head of data for a you know, pretty big bank yesterday. And he was talking about the fact that actually it's possible to look back through transaction histories, for instance. And if suddenly someone goes from, you know, just normal, everyday, you know, um, uh, Joe Bloggs on the street to eating most of their meals at fast food, then that's an ind indicator that actually often in the future means that they're going to be defaulting on loans. Like, they have fallen off wow. a cliff. Like, suddenly they are just, you know, drinking, eating, like, burgers, you know, galore. And you kind of think, like, how far does responsibility actually reach? If, if, a, if a bank can tell in advance when people are, are likely to start to be in trouble. Because the data science is probably there with enough, you know, if you've got 20 million customers, then you can probably see some really interesting signals in that. Is it their responsibility then to start helping, preventing people from going into arrears, which actually then might make, you know, more charges for the bank or not? Like, how, how do we hold their responsibility? I think it depends on how it's done would be my perspective. It's an off at that point, it's an offer of help, isn't it? It's not a, I'm going to do something. It's a, do you need help? And a lot of times people who are struggling in whatever way don't, aren't asked that question. And not everybody who's asked that question will go, actually, yes, I'm in desperate need of help. Please, please help me. Uh, some people will go, no, no, I'm fine, I'm fine. But maybe that's where you start. My I don't know where that then leads, what the next step is. And yeah. I think that's the tricky, really thorny bit. It's Which is probably a bit heavy going for this early yeah. in the show. <laughs> but, it, but it is an interesting point, and a lot of organisations have tried to do those nudges in that way. But, yeah, I mean, my bank's probably really worried about me right now, I'll be honest with you. <laughs> like, Deliveroo, a lot. You know, like, so they're like, this guy needs need help. help. Yeah, yeah, exactly. They're giving me a hug, turning up at the house, all sorts of stuff. So we better move on, though, because there is a lot of other news that we need to be covering. So there was a, a story that we picked up sort of in the, the general theme of what we were talking about a little bit. This was on NPR. Uh, a new credit card code is a first step towards preventing gun violence, advocates now say. So gun control advocates are cheering a new change in the credit card industry that they say could help prevent gun violence 
Credit card companies Visa, MasterCard, and American Express all said that they would adopt a new code to categorize the sale of guns uh, at gun shops. This is a move that advocates say will make it easier to flag suspicious gun sales, never mind delivery, but guns now apparently. Uh, all purchases made with credit cards uh, are categorized with what is then called a merchant code, a special code aside to various types of businesses. Um, apparently for years, gun shops have been categorized as miscellaneous, which is a strange categorization in that sense, isn't it? You know? uh, or sporting goods, which equally kind of weird in that one. So uh, now after the democratic-supported uh, effort led by the socially progressive bank, no, I'm not going to be able to get through that, Amalgamate. Anybody want to have Amalgamate. Is it amalgamation? I haven't got the notes. Amalgamated. Amalgamated. Okay, amalgamated bank. Who knew? Uh, gun stores will now have a separate code for them. So, I mean, this is interesting. I know back in your Monzo days, you did a lot of about uh, codes and all MCCs were my specialist subject. Like, I had to go through every one of them to work out what little icon <laughs> would be shown on the screen. Because it was one of the few bits of MasterCard metadata that would come through. You know, it'd be the, the time, the date, the amount, the currency, and then be this MCC code. And we were like... Oh, what's that? And when you look into it... everybody. Really fun at a dinner party, <laughs> as you wanted to. When you look into it, it's weird. Like, I've pulled up a list. There's, like, there's a code for bakeries, freezer, locker meat provisioners, wholesale clubs, um, petroleum and petroleum products, metal service centres and offices. Don't really have to use that icon very much, to tell you the truth. Um, but essentially, these codes came up in, in the US... Uh, as a way to handle 1099 tax returns. So it would actually categorise the, uh, the store, the merchant. So actually taxes would be easier at the end of the year. But this data sort of grew and suddenly out of these thousands of codes, like 500 of them about airlines, 500 of them about like hotel chains, and then there's all these weird ones. But the interesting thing is these things power things like the gambling block that you've probably seen with Monzo and Starling. It's like, because once you, know, once you can see a code and the authorization request comes through, you can say yes or no to it. So there's, there's obviously an interesting thing there that, okay, there's a gambling block. Like socially aware banks could say, well, we're just not going to have any payments to, um, to gun suppliers. There's also something on the other side, because if you're a shop and you need to actually get a, a payment processor, you need a card, a card um, or a chip and pin or whatever, a, a way to pay in your shop, then actually it's also a way to prevent that because you have to apply for your MCC code and then someone could say, well, actually, we don't, we're a payment processor and we don't provide machines to gun shops. So there's, there are dangers here that if you were the uh, is it NRA, you're like, whoa, 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 because both on the consumer side and the business side, this is a potential to like, cut off revenue to the, mm. uh, to the gun industry. Yeah, it's, it's a funny one. Is it? It's like uh, they're, they're doing it to try and... To, similar to the delivery thing. They're trying to predict weed behaviour. You know, if I'm like living my life and suddenly I buy a bunch of guns, they're going to do something with that? You know, like... I don't know. I mean, does this I, seem, I, I don't this understand who would flag, because it makes it easier to flag the activity, but would the bank flag the, like, who's the credit card, who are they flagging it to? Is it used in investigations after or before? Yeah. Like, it seems like if it's legal to buy a gun, I mean, it's going to be bundled tagged, in that same... I don't know, is, is there... It's that same push notification around, like, you're ordering a lot of food. Yeah. Like, it, okay. Second one, you seem to have bought a gun. Like, yeah. uh, we, we need weird. To, we need to ask the bank guy. Yeah. 
Can I have a rant? <laughs> <laughs> go, go. Like, oh my God, this pisses me off. Like, just... So I've got a website here, right? I'm use it. Summary of federal law. So there is <laughs> no comprehensive national system of gun registration in the US. In fact, federal law prohibits the use of the national instant crime background check systems create any system of registration of firearms or firearm owners. I mean, what the fuck? Like, <laughs> MCC codes or a gun register? I mean, the solution is fucking obvious, right? Like, it's a bit like financial crime where you just see this um, abdication from governments around properly sorting out financial crime, right? Where implement proper identity for people and for businesses have mandatory sharing of payment data so you can put together the graph that everyone can't see the whole thing, right? You can see your bit of it, and you can solve the problem properly. Do not abdicate the responsibility of the private sector. It's, you know, there are crypto people in the audience shivering <laughs> yeah. at the surveillance state that you're currently... Uh, it's, it's not that, it's just like... I can, actually, I can hear them. The good thing about crypto, gas. right, is crypto, you can actually trace the whole, the whole thing on the chain, right? You can yeah. actually trace what is going on. Whereas you can't. If, if I see one side of the payment, I can't see the rest of the network, and it could be bad guys, it could be not. And I, I just... Uh, this. Honestly, really, this is like, if they think this is going to solve the horrific problem of gun crime in the US, it's like, it's a joke, right? Mm. The government needs to sort it out. Yeah, it's, it's a weird one as well, is it doesn't necessarily, it, it, you can see what they're trying to do, and it feels very tokenistic, but at the same time, and I like anybody at 11FS who monitors our internet traffic, was searching how you buy guns in the, in the US a lot earlier on, so they're like, there might be, there might be some weird things that pop up. Just saying. So, but you can just go into Walmart and buy a gun, right? So, I remember doing a, um, a UK PFM bank project, and we were worried that, yeah, but at Tesco you can buy a TV and it will be categorised food, and but you can buy a gun in Walmart. You know what I mean? Like you can do your shop and a rifle. And that all appear. So, well, but not, you know, we're losing like forty-nine percent of the US uh, audience. Yeah, I know. Who yeah. are like, look, dude, there's a right to bear arms. You know, yeah. as a militia, we have to protect against the government. And yes, a AR uh, assault rifle is a valid sporting implement. Like, uh, I need it. Yeah, I'm not sure what. Uh, <laughs> I'm not sure what sport that is. But, uh, <laughs> um, so, there's a, a tweet from uh, Simon Familo. Uh, does Walmart sell guns? Walmart does sell guns, like an extensive collection of guns, very cheaply as well. This isn't an advertisement for Walmart, just in case you're thinking they don't sponsor the podcast. Dave, there is a cost of living crisis, and come on, you've got to have cheap guns. I mean, exactly, yeah. Go out there, find your own food. Do they do higher purchase? Do they want to? Least to own your gun. Yeah. I bet that's a thing. <laughs> I didn't find it, but what, what do you think, Sarah? Is it, uh, this, it feels like we're solving the wrong part of the problem in this one. But, so, I, but, but to your point, there's going to be a lot of American listeners who are like stupid Brits, like five, you know? Yeah. Don't get so it. Sorry. I think <laughs> I saw, I saw um, I, when I read around the article earlier, and there was one article, uh, one news publication that said at the bottom, we understand sometimes politics and financial news intersect. Please don't come after us for the politics. And I was like, yes, absolutely. This is a political, this is a political thing. It's a political win for those people who want tighter gun controls and they're taking what they can get. And I, you know, I, I'm with Richard in that I just don't think this is the way to do it. You know, not least, just talking about the merchant categorization and... Not to not to call Monzo out on this, but um, I was <laughs> I used Uh-oh. my Monzo card <laughs> to um, buy um, some flowers at a street market the other week, and my phone pinged and it said Jeff's next to it and a picture of a pair of scissors, and I was like, "What?" 
And so I went over to my partner. I said, what have you been doing? Well, I was buying flowers. He said, nothing. I said, well, the joint account says you've been to a hairdresser's. I said, I have not been to a hairdresser's. And somehow this flower merchant had come up categorised on Armonzo as a hairdresser's. And that's a tiny little insignificant thing that's completely irrelevant apart from maybe, you know, breaking up our relationship. Um, um, Seemed very controlling, Sarah. I'll be honest. <laughs> to be honest, it could have been just, a lot worse. There were some NCC codes that you just don't want to get into. <laughs> well, it was the scissors. I was like, I think this is the hairdresser's or there's something else going on here. Um, but yeah, no, I think I, I, I just completely agree. I don't, I, obviously, I'm all for tight gun controls. That goes without saying. I don't think this is the way to do it. I think this is a way of a, a, a small political win happening. And, you know, that's because the, the, the Republicans have already come out against it. You've got attorneys general from a, a number of states, probably more by the time we're talking, who've said we're going to push through, you know, an appeal tomorrow. And they were like issuing strongly worded warnings to Visa and MasterCard. Now, normally, a strongly worded warning would make me laugh. We know these guys have guns. So, um, <laughs> um, but it is, it's, 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 it's a political thing. It's not a financial thing. Um, and I, it's not the solution. It, it's, a, it's a weird one. I don't think we understand this. But, I mean, yes. And just to, just to kind of put it in context, I was in Charlotte last week and a man four in front of me trying to check in through security at the airport put a gun into the thing. <laughs> Like it was normal. Can you do that? Can you take? Can you take a gun? No, I you, genuinely no, don't you know no, you cannot. No, I mean, hold checking. on. I mean, Anna, you lived in the states for. Yeah, a I lived in New York, so it's not really. It's not unknown. Yeah, not really it's US. not. It's not really yeah, the same. The same situation, but yeah, it is very much a political win. I mean, I if you think about it, like there's a lot of people there who are in favor of having guns. So just the decision by a big company to take a stance, because this is just taking a stance, will have enormous implications, right? Um, at least from a like image perspective, right? Like companies like PayPal, I believe, and Stripe, they've said you can't buy guns using their platforms, and that takes it's, it's a big stance. It's like saying I am against all of like half of the population. So I think, or I don't know if it's half, but you know, a, a, a lot of I think it's like very hard for people in Europe. Um, if you guys still want to be called as in being in Europe, to to you know. Uh, I, I just, I just the learned. Crowd after turned I, on you. Yeah, I, I, I grew, I grew up in in the continent, so I was shocked when I came here. And we were still in the EU that it was another continent. So I, I want to be precise. Um, so yeah, it's just hard for us to 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 know to, to to understand. It just seems like such a different world. And so you'd think maybe. So maybe for me, like I'm thinking, does it really matter what you categorize it? Like even if it's flagged, who's going to actually take action? But there, it just. So as Sarah was saying, it might be a little step that might mean more. Yeah. I mean, just even more practically, like, you don't go... And Jason will know the answer to this. Jason, does it go down to, like, the SKU level or does it just say you made a purchase of that merchant? So you could be buying polish for your 400-year-old anti-collectible muscles. Sure. Yeah, I mean, officer. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> maybe $600 worth of uh, maybe polish. Maybe you've got some, like, rabbits you need to shoot. I don't know. My, my point is it's... it's, it's that's the, ridiculous, that's the ridiculous level of it, right? It's not that useful. Even if you were going to flag it, it's well, not that useful. I mean, the way to get around this is you go to Walmart because... Yeah, you just buy groceries. <laughs> well, because buying a gun at Walmart will have the Walmart MCC code. Yeah. And so, therefore, it doesn't catch all of these things. And it's, it's a weird world. But, you know, they got Al Capone for tax evasion. You know, they, you, they cut off WikiLeaks from MasterCard and Visa. Like, cutting off the money is a, is a valid strategy for dealing with... So- 
things people would see are societal problems. I think the counter-argument, which has some credibility, is if you start tagging things and then they get, it gets used in the opposite way. Like if, it, if you start tagging things that have become illegal, like abortions, yeah. and it's a state where, you know, you can't have a... Like, what happens then? And this comes from having now been covering crypto for a long time. You sort of think from the libertarian perspective, like what if I get, you know, st- like what if a government decides to block me in rather than yeah. the other way around for something that is, is a right now? Yeah, I mean, if it goes down to that level, it starts to be really weird PFM, doesn't it? It's like <laughs> suddenly it's like Deliveroo, uh, guns and abortions in your yeah. pie chart in that sense. But you, you are right, though. You can now buy guns in more states than you can have abortions in the UK, uh, in the US which is fucking mental, isn't it, in that sense. But we're going to lose even more of the US crowd, so we should move on at this point. All right, uh, we're going to take a little bit of a quick break. Uh, Don't go anywhere, we'll be back very shortly. As the leading open banking platform, Tink enables the largest banks, lenders, and payment providers to offer exceptional user experiences. Tink offers the best way to connect to banks across Europe to build seamless services that can reach more than 250 million consumers. And they're already doing this for the likes of American Express, PayPal, and Revolut. To get started with data-driven solutions for customer onboarding, making better risk decisions, or for instant bank payments with the highest conversion rate in the industry, visit Tink.com. As you gear up for autumn, you need the right people on your team to help your small business fire on all cylinders. LinkedIn Jobs is here to make it easier. Tap into the world's largest professional network with over 30 million people in the UK. Create a job post in minutes and spread the word so your network can help you find the right people to hire. Just add the purple hashtag hiring frame to your LinkedIn profile. Simple tools like screening questions make it easy to find candidates with just the right skills and experience. It's why small businesses rate LinkedIn jobs number one in delivering quality hires compared with leading competitors. LinkedIn jobs helps you find the candidates you want to talk to faster. And you can post a job for free. Just visit linkedin.com slash fintech. That's linkedin.com slash fintech. Terms and conditions apply. All right, welcome back. Let's get on with the next story. So this was covered in a bunch of different places, but uh, we picked it up over at The Times, which is HSBC opens its accounts with Moneys. Uh, Moneys, the London-based fintech that provides digital banking and remittance services to consumers and businesses across Europe, has raised $35 million from global banking giant HSBC. The deal will see HSBC take a stake in the banking uh, fintech of less than 10%. Dang, $35 million, 10%. That's pretty good going for Moneys right there. We need to talk to Norris, uh, Jason, uh, drinks on him. Uh, it takes the total amount raised uh, to date by Moneys to $208 million. Uh, founded in 2013, Moneys is one of several challenger banks to emerge from the UK capital, serving customers with a range of online-only services, including standard uh, accounts, savings, and international money transfers. Money said that the new funding would support the continued growth of its platform, while HSBC will plug into Money's cloud-based banking and as, as a service business. Uh, this is super interesting, right? Uh, and actually, I mean, we're seeing more and more of the, you know, it was all of the, oh my God, fintechs versus banks. But actually, increasingly, there's a, a great partnership that's sort of going on there. But Anna, what do you think on this one? Is this a, 
sign of things to come in terms of the challenging world that we live in in terms of raising money and maybe fintechs moving more towards investment from big gigantic organizations like HSBC? I mean, fintechs have been raising from banks for the beginning, even though we'd like to tell a story of one against the other. Um, I don't know in this case if it tells more about the, the, the challenge or the bank that's investing. I mean, this is like a time, we've mentioned it before, where investors are saying they want to focus on companies that are profitable. Not many challenger banks are profitable, so and there's just a sense that there's a lot less money to go around, or investors have the money, they, and they're, very, they're a lot more careful. So, you know, I wonder whether it might have just been, you know, you want to give us money, good, let, let's have it. So if the wor- worst happens, we, we have, we're covered. Um, but I would hope that there is a big strategy behind the, the, both sides rather than just like, oh, let's throw money here or there. Like, I, yeah. I, hope that, I don't know that that would be the case. Yeah. I mean, it feels like many of the sort of internal VCs are getting a bit more sort of maturity at the, the big banks in that sense. But what, what do you think, Sarah? Is this a, a sort of a match made in heaven in that sense? Or uh, how do you think this will work out? Well, I think, I think it's interesting because, um, exactly to Anna's point, we've seen a lot of banks put a lot of money into neobanks over the years. You go back as far as you know, BBVA and Simple and beyond that. And some of them have worked, some of them haven't. And particularly if you look at BBVA, it's been really interesting to see their strategy evolve, going from like trying to buy a bank through to putting some money into lots of different banks. Through to writing off all of its investment. <laughs> <laughs> um, as, as learning. Learning, yeah. yeah so. um, but they now hold a you know they're the majority stakeholder in Atom, but they've they chose not to when they had asked the opportunity do a full takeover. They had they had learned something. Somebody had learned something somewhere, and I actually think BBVA do this really really well and started very early and therefore have you know quite a lot of experience in it. And I think we're sort of seeing the other banks, larger banks, come up behind. Um, I think it's particularly interesting in the UK. Of all the four major high street banks, we haven't seen any of them do anything particularly interesting in terms of a new brand. They've all kept up with features and functionality to a certain extent, but brand-wise, there hasn't been that much movement. Um, so that'll be interesting to see whether HSBC takes us any further. But I think the more interesting point for me is HSBC admitting that it's going to go to another supplier for its financial and wealth management capabilities. It's going down the banking as a service route, but with a very publicly branded fintech if that makes sense. So historically, you would see big banks go, right, okay, well, and Richard, maybe correct me on this, but my understanding is that you would go to a third-party supplier, but it wouldn't necessarily be another consumer-facing or public-facing brand. It would be a technology supplier. This is a really interesting move for me in the banking-as-a-service space to see two brands, well-known brands, come together and one sit behind the other. Um, and I know that Moneys hasn't been in the banking-as-a-service space for very long. So that, it'll be interesting to see what HSP says HSBC does off the back of that. Yeah, I mean, it's an, an amazing thing to sort of go from a B2C in that sense, providing something to your consumers to B2B to providing a capability out there in that sense, isn't it? But, I mean, it's a, an interesting one for... I mean, money's kind of moved predominantly into sort of immigrant uh, yeah, that, that was always their, their big, you know, that was their big differentiator, was yeah. we will help people who can't get a bank account get a bank account. Yeah. And if they could, you know, you talk point about profitability, Anna, but actually if they can't quite make that profitable but it ain't far away, then actually, well, what would that be for uh, running a current account for a size of a HSBC account in that sense? But then what, what do you think? I mean, yeah, is I, this, uh, to the BVBVA point, if you consume it, are you going to break it immediately? Well, I think there's a, there is a pattern here because when you're, when you're in a fintech 
particular space and your fourth, fifth, sixth, seventh, somewhere down the kind of zip curve of, uh, of profitability size scale. Um, what's a good example? Scalable capital. Like they weren't in the top couple, two or three um, robo-advisors. So what are they going to do? Because on the next funding round, things are just going to get more and more difficult in order to go that space. So you provide the back end to ING, you provide the back end to someone else, and actually you change your game. You've proven that you can do it in, with customers live and that it's, you know, it's a live thing, but you're going to struggle because you're just not keeping up. I think, yeah. you know, Manise was... I think valued 280 million something. I think it lost 31 million last year. So compared to some of the bigger challenges, the Revoluts, the Monzos, the Starlings, it, it's further, much further down the curve. So what do you do? Uh, and I think you flip. You do flip into a, we've got a viable thing. We've, it's, you know, it's been tested out with the public. And now we can actually change this in order to, you know, to provide a service to a bigger player. So I think you, you see it in a variety of situations where you're... You know, player five, six, seven, and below, and things are going to start to get difficult. Then you have to pivot, and suddenly your never have I ever game, you know, comes into comes into play. Well, it's, I mean, it's an interesting one, though. Is it? How does that work, though? For I mean, you know, whiteboarding this slightly, because actually, like in a big organisation like HSBC, where there's a gigantic backlog of activity that's happening, if money suddenly has to slot into that in order to deliver new features to its customers. It's going to be fucking painful, isn't it? Do you know what I mean? So, so what are they doing this for? Are they doing it because essentially the money's platform becomes the way of delivering these things? Or I, I found we've some, sometimes overestimated these investments. Like we think, I wonder what they're going to do, and then they just sit there. We're, like we're trying you were to... mentioning the BBVA ones. Yeah. They've just like mm. bought ten yeah. percent, and then they, they do something we forget. So it might just be that they thought they're going to. They might not have plans to use it. Maybe it's just an option in case like the challengers go, you know, that they can, they're already in. Maybe they just want to learn. They sit on the board and they see what's going on. You know, that's an option. Like, I'm paying $35 million to know what you're doing um, rather than actually, you know, wanting to integrate it. Like, I, I'm curious to see, you know, because as of now, like, people have invested. They've launched their own and there's degrees of success, right? Like, Chase launched here. Goldman has Marcus in the U.S. Um, in the U.S., Chase does well with its own app like so I think we're at like a level of maturity with both investing and building and that I, I think you can do it on your own but also not but I think you can also have the BBVA example where you invest it lots and then it just sits there yeah I mean it's spread betting at this stage isn't it in terms of what will what will work in that but what, what do you think Rich is this a is this a strategy that you can see panning out or is this something that you think will um uh, will struggle to will the uh the organ be rejected by the donor in that sense or well, it's only less than 10%, they say. So clearly it's not a full integration like BBVA tribes, both Simple and Holvi, and both failed. Um, so I guess from that point of view, you've not got that risk of organ reduction. I guess the question for me is, like, what are they doing with it? Is it the banking service play? Um, I do think it's going to be interesting if HPC's financial crime policy meets monies. Um, from that point of view, but maybe. Um, or from a long-term uh, point of view, um, I mean, HPC certainly, I used to work there for a while, was kind of meant to be the world's local bank, and they kind of struggled to deliver that proposition in retail because it was a collection, actually, of acquired banks that all had their own separate tech stacks and could never quite get a thing where you come from France to UK or whatever and they actually know you. So I, I can kind of see from a strategic cross-border Migration point of view, there's something there. Yeah, 
I mean, it's, it's interesting, isn't it? There, there was a, a tweet, um, Simon Famillo, uh, a bank's learning from NatWest's failure, uh, failed experiment with Bo. You know, arguably, you know, Bo was the, the long road to, you know, get fit. And if buying something is like the liposuction, you know what I mean? Like, you want to get to the thing quickly, but not do the work to get there. Like, inevitably, I can't see that working out if, if they integrate it. But to your point, Rich, it's, a, it's 10%. It's not a, they don't have a controlling majority. They don't, you know, they'll have a board seat, but they won't be materially directing the organization in terms of what it does next. And it sort of feels like, so long as money doesn't become the canary in the mine in that sense, in terms of, you know, le learning too much, therefore slowing them down, then I think in the, the market that we're in, gaining capital, wherever you're getting capital from, is probably a bloody good idea, isn't it? Well, also, Moniz has other large banks that are invested in it that it's working with. I, I believe it's Investec mm. yeah. um, most recently. So it's, Moniz hasn't put all its eggs in one basket either. Like, it's, you know, I, to, to, your, to your point earlier, it, it's spread butting. It's you try a bit of this, you try a bit of this, you try a bit of this. And the fintechs have learned that as well because nobody has the time or the resources. Well, time is a resource, to sit and go through procurement or a proof of concept with a single bank because you'll be dead by the end of it if it doesn't work. Yeah, but on the other hand, you've got to say, like, well done, Moniz, like, raising money at this moment yeah. for a, for a uh, you know, challenger bank that's losing money that isn't one of the, the big ones to actually get the deal through at a, you know, reasonable valuation. Without... TechCrunch was saying it wasn't a down round, which is in itself yeah. is an achievement. Yeah, absolutely. Well, there's, there's a, a question on that, actually, from uh, Chantal Swainson. Sorry if I pronounced that wrong. Uh, for, is this a better result for Moniz or HSBC? Who, who's the bigger winner in this, this deal, do you think? If Moniz needed the money, Moniz yeah. have done very well. <laughs> sure. And I, and I think, to carry the point about the trend, um, majority just raised in the US, which is another bank targeting immigrants. So there's, I think there's something else maybe to be looked at there as well, Again, banks are taking it slowly but surely, but are they having a think about how do we serve this population? Very good, very good. Uh, one, more, one more tweet So uh, from Arib. Uh, bank fintech collabs looking uh, like the way forward for both conventional and Islamic finance. Shout out to Kestrel app. Yeah, shameless plug. Good job. You got it. That was impressive. So uh, <laughs> you left that shameless plug bit at the end there. I was like committed to 80% through that thing. So it's all good. All right. Uh, we're going to have to wrap up there. But, but actually, it is time to choose our finally story. If you listen to the podcast regularly, we bring out a sort of a weird and wonderful, it might be vaguely fintech related. It might just be for fun because we like to end the show with a laugh. Um, but it's time to choose our finally story. So on the screen behind us is a wheel of news with four options. So each of them is related to possible and finally style story uh, to end the show, which is really good fun for the guests because they've got no idea what we're about to be talking about. So it's, uh, I don't, I'm not sure, Sarah, if you um, researched all four of them or not, but... Uh, I read all four summaries and went, <laughs> work it out later. <laughs> all right, awesome. Well, they're all funny, so they should be fine. All right, um, so if you give a huge round of applause, we've got our wonderful guest to come and press our big old red button. <laughs> oh. All right, so, uh, so our four options are Melbourne Mansion, all right, oh. I Fall, don't know, Amazoids, uh, Go to Jail. Um, so, I mean, it's going to be interesting to see which one of these four actually win. So, right, if you give the big red button a big old push, let's see what happens. 
Oh, that's is that on the line? Amazonalds. Uh, Amazonalds. Yeah. All right. Uh, give them a bit of a round of applause as they go off. All right. So the Amazonals story of the of the week is so Jeff Bezos apparently roasted for tweet about his first job at McDonald's. This was covered in a bunch of different places, but uh, the Independent. So Jeff Bezos has come under fire for reminiscing about his first job at McDonald's in a tweet. The photo of him saying eating a burger at the fast food chain. Uh, my first job and still the same great burger. Happy Sunday, everybody. The Amazon founder tweeted. Uh, Mr. Bezos has previously recounted how he started working at McDonald's when he was 16 in 1980 uh, to Cody Teets. Is that a person? I don't know. Uh, from her, oh yeah, from her book, Golden Opportunity, Remarkable Careers That Began at McDonald's. Um, but Twitter users were quick to point out the flaws in Bezos' rags to riches story. One user wrote, Jeff Bezos' parents gave him $300,000 to start Amazon and become the world's richest work exploiter. That was a low blow. Um, another wrote, uh, Bezos seems to have a classic Big Mac pack, which costs $29.89, or nearly two hours of working at an Amazon warehouse, which was equally a bit of a low blow on that one. But, uh, I mean, is this just... Was Jeff just having a nice little reminisce? Like, uh, is, that a, is that a bad thing to, to do in that sense? Where was your first job, Sarah? Uh, well, I worked in a worked at a cafe, <coughs> possibly illegally because I was fourteen. Um, but uh, yeah, just doing making cups of tea and clearing tables right. it wasn't very exciting. Yeah, you haven't reminisced and tweeted about that just yet. No, I don't actually know if the cafe is still there. There you go. That would be a nice nostalgic trip. I grew up in a beautiful market town, you know, in Warwickshire. So maybe I'll go back and visit visit the cafe where I first started working. Do it. Make it happen, Anna. What do you think? Is this is this a bit mean? Like, is it just him? Tough nice old man, Jeff. Um, I, I just confirms that it's better not to use Twitter at times. People in crypto will know, like, that is just when you think to send it to your friend or yeah. someone else uh, yeah. rather than tweet it if you're not sure because someone will always have something mean to say. Yeah, the internet. Yes. It's just full Nasty. of not nice people, yeah. isn't it? So, well, Jason, what was your first job? I worked at Topman. Saturday at Topman. In fact, my proudest moment of my junior sort of sales career was we, I had um, a mum call up to complain that her son had bought a suit when he didn't go in to actually buy a suit. <laughs> I was like, winning this is what it's about. And that's where it all started. <laughs> was it one of those proper shiny suits? Oh, yeah. This, this was oh, yeah. Uh, the 90s, so this was, this was definitely, definitely shiny. Nice. Um, Jeff Be- Bezos. Like, you don't know, because on one hand, this could be he's just eating and away you go. On the other hand, it's his PR trying to pull a uh, thing. Like, billionaire tweets, are they really random? I assume a lot of them are if you read Elon's, but... Um, <laughs> That's definitely true. <laughs> but with Jeff, like, are they random? Or are they, you know, as is the, the press calls him out, is he trying to be fake working class? That this is, you know, my first job, I was on the grills, I was with you guys, where, you know, that wasn't really his background. Mm. Um, I agree with Anna, he's got a tough crowd, like he's never going to sign that. I think we need to create a, like, Twitter for billionaires and, oh, wow. you know, uh, so that they can, they can send these stories between themselves yeah. and have a nice time. 
There you go. Truth social. <laughs> it wasn't just the billionaires bit they were going for, was it? But, uh, but yeah, I mean, it is an interesting one. Like, it's like um, Twitter, verified Twitter, billionaire Twitter. Yeah. yeah. But again, Elon was trying to do that, wasn't he, to be fair. But... That definitely exists, though, right? What, we just, billionaire Twitter? We just don't know about yeah, exactly. it. Yeah, like, that's true. Yeah, it's like sure. those dating apps that apparently are for billionaires. Like, you just vaguely hear about them on the ether. But... Wow. I mean, there's such a short amount of billionaires that that must be like the same the same like 15 people just going on dates with each other basically (laughs) (laughs) who's paying when they're both billionaires as well so rich what was your uh, what was your first job i worked in a brickworks um taking the bricks stacking on a forklift Wow, that sounds backbreaking. It was. I, I, I don't have the hands for that. You know? It lasted like, like three weeks. <laughs> I was like dead by the end of it. So I, I can see myself like when I'm that sort of uh, Jeff Bezos, like multi-billionaire, whatever, with the, the kill and the bricks. Uh, it'll, be a, it'll be a great face. You can look forward to that one. <laughs> Very good. Uh, we have one from uh, Mansa Musa. McDonald's was my first job too, uh, and I'm in my overdraft. All right, well. <laughs> <laughs> it's, good. it's good to know. Uh, sort of that... The sort of equilibrium, keeping it real one. So, what, what about everybody else? What was your first job? McDonald's. McDonald's. How many McDonald's are there? Hands up. What was Not your first one. job? Not that many. In McDonald's as well? Yeah. You were... I was in Harry Potter. Wow. Oh, that's a cool first job. Oh. She wins. For, for everybody listening to that, that was the whoop lady. Uh, <laughs> The theatrical kind of nature. She's, like, she's uh, been waiting her entire life for that yeah, one question. Exactly, yeah. Even in a live audience. Exactly, yeah. So what, what were you in Harry Potter? I was one of the people that walked across Millennium Bridge when, like, the Death Eaters... Wow, nice. Whoa. Do you know what? I think producer Laura is really impressed with that. Like, as a, <laughs> she's a big Harry Potter fan. Like, you, you might get asked for an autograph. In it, but, uh, but that's super cool. Anybody else? I'll be honest, whatever you did, it's going to be a bit shit now. Uh, any other good first jobs? Go on, Em. Uh, I ate 16 brand cash office for a full detail Woolworths store. Wow. Wow. Whoa. Yeah. Did it sort of descend into fucking chaos, like, almost immediately? Was that what happened, or...? Uh, yeah, we were super efficient, so we worked about three hours in our ten-hour day. We were just about right, we got paid on the three quarter. Yeah. Three hours, hit the pick and mix, right? That's, uh... <laughs> I'll, I'll be honest, my, my first job was McDonald's as well. Like, uh, I haven't been tweeting about it. But I made a Big Mac that, like, fucking Scooby-Doo would be excited about. <laughs> do you know what I mean? It wasn't about serving customers. I always say it's like, uh, I started at McDonald's, got no stars. I'll be honest with you. <laughs> I expected, like, a, oh, at that point. I'll just try that again. I started at McDonald's, got no stars. <laughs> Don't cheer it. Like, it's a sad story. Um, but no, it was, it was the breaks where I made Scooby-Doo sandwiches. That was the best thing in that nice. sense. And I feel on this note, we really should wrap up. This is the hard-hitting fintech news that people jo- join in for, isn't it? But uh, on that note, everybody, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much to the guests. A big round of applause for the panelists, everybody. As always, where can people learn a little bit more about you? Starting with you, Mr. Jason Bates. Where can people learn more? LinkedIn. All good. Uh, Kachansky, <laughs> where can people find more? Twitter, at Sarah Kachansky. Very good. Is that for Anna. billionaires, or is that just... Uh... Uh, yeah. Um, no, that's my normal Twitter handle. <laughs> Billionaire Twitter. 
If that doesn't exist, we need to make that happen, like, genuinely. <laughs> if it does exist, where's my, where's my invite? I want exactly, to exactly, yeah. Uh, Anna, where can people learn more? On Twitter, at Anna Herrera, or on Bloomberg's website. Very good. Richard, where can people learn more? Uh, I'm taking Anna's advice about no Twitter, so LinkedIn. <laughs> very, very good. As for me, if you're listening to this on the podcast, you can find me on LinkedIn. If you're in the room, you can find me at the bar very shortly, I'll be honest. Uh, thank you so much for listening, and thank you to our audience here in London. Give yourself a round of applause. <laughs> All right. Uh, if you want to join the conversation on social media or email, podcast at 11fs.com or at the bar, as I said, in a second for a slice of pizza and a beer. Thank you very much for joining us, everybody. Good night. <laughs>